This episode of The First Mile is supported by Montaigne's Further Faster podcast. If you love The First Mile, you'll love Further Faster. It features interviews with some of the world's greatest ultra-athletes, climbers and adventurers about exploring the world's most extreme environments. We regularly listen to Further Faster for inspiration, and I would particularly recommend the episode with Jenny Tuff, where she talks about why she spends three weeks running through the mountains with just a backpack for company. Just search for Further Faster on the same podcast app that you found the first mile. Welcome to the first mile with Ash Bardwaj and Pip Stewart, in which we learn how travel, adventure and storytelling can change you and the way you look at the world. So in our last Dispatch episode, we got to listen to Ash's amazing trip to Nepal, where he trekked up the Annapurna mountain range, ate pickles and did some fairly questionable dancing. Um, So if you haven't listened to that one, I would highly recommend you give it a go. But you don't need to have heard it to enjoy this Dispatch episode. One of the most unusual aspects of that group trip you went on, Ash, was the connection it had to the Gurkhas, who were Nepalese soldiers recruited to serve in the British Army. I think we're both interested in digging a little bit deeper into that and spending an episode thinking about how travel can intercept with history and teach us more about our own society as well as the countries we're visiting. So Ash, for anyone who hasn't listened to our first episode on Nepal, can you tell us a little bit about the trip you're on? Yeah, of course. It was a photography trip. And what we did is we flew into Kathmandu, which is the capital of Nepal, and then went to Pokhara, which is the second city of Nepal, next to a big lake in the west of the country. We spent a couple of days there and then went up into the mountains to see the mountains and see what life is like up there. And then spent a couple of days in the hill villages. So these are uh, quite heavily populated areas of Nepal that aren't in the high mountains, but it's where you can grow crops. And the whole trip was organised by these two guys. Mark and Johnny, who are both ex-Gurkha officers in the British Army. And who are the Gurkhas, Ash? Good question. I actually asked that of both Mark and Johnny whilst I was out on the trek with them, walking uh, at great altitude in the Himalayas, uh, and I recorded it. So this being one of our dispatch episodes, Pip, uh, I'm going to be using some of those audio clips to help tell the story. Yeah, so... It's a, it's a very curious story and I've explained it over the years to many people and some of them are just like jaw dropped by how this could come around because actually, you know, the brief history of it, and I will try and keep it brief, you go back 200 years and you had two empires, the British one, which is the more famous of the two because it was huge, in India and you had the Nepali Empire, which is obviously something people generally haven't heard of but Nepal was trying to grow and expand in an empire-building way down into the fertile plains of India. And so these two empire-building forces clashed. The colonial Brits, I think in their rather cocksure way, thought, you know, we'll we'll put in a punitive mission and we'll just crush these small small mountain kingdom people who are basically Bolshe. And uh, it didn't quite work out like that, and there was a two-year Anglo-Nepal war, 1813 to 1815 Um, and during that time the British suffered suffered some serious military defeats which was totally sort of not in their script. Um, Eventually the British did win and the Nepalis, the Gurkhas, rather than perhaps go back to scratching out tough livings as subsistent farmers in the fields, 
they decided actually being a warrior is you know a soldier is more honorable more exciting perhaps the greater promise of riches with victories and all the rest of it so they um, admired what they'd seen of the British and the British soldiers and commanders and they said how about we work something out here um, and in a nutshell that's that's where it spawned from and it's it's formed into a, a brigade which is integral to the British army the brigade has uh, engineering elements logistics elements signals elements but the real core of it is the rifles battalions and that's what the, the Gurkha soldiers are most famous for, is excellent, excellent infantry soldiers. So they're effectively Nepalese soldiers in the British Army? Yeah, so historically recruited from Nepal. Was it a tribe originally, Gurkhas? Where did the name come from? Are they all still from a single tribe? So the, the name, we call it Gurkha, with more of a U, um, but the derivation comes from the place name uh, Gorkha, more with an O. Uh, so Gorka is a district and a town at the centre of that district and that's where the empire-building chief of Nepal, uh, Prithvi Naran Shah, that's where he was born and it's where he sort of expanded his kingdom from. And now the Brigade of Gurkhas features, you know, any in terms of tribe, any comers. So it was traditionally the hill tribes actually that we were recruiting we found that they made the best soldiers the hardiest people from the hardiest places and that translated into excellent soldiers but these days it's open to anybody yeah and when uh, mark says anybody there he means any nepalese person uh, anyone who's a nepalese national and you can hear mark was actually breathing quite heavily there that's because we were both walking uphill at about 2,000 meters of altitude in the himalayas <laughs> and am I right in thinking, Ash, that the Gurkhas played a really crucial role in the First and Second World Wars? Yeah, and much further back beyond that as well, because the Gurkhas really came about as a product of the British Empire being in India. And the Gurkhas fought all over India as the British uh, suppressed rebellion and tried to keep control of their holdings in India, particularly the 1857 Indian Mutiny or First War of Independence as it's known in India. They fought in Afghanistan back in the 19th century, then in every theatre of the First World War, whether that was the Western Front, whether that was in Mesopotamia, which now Iraq, uh, and then in the Second World War also a lot in North Africa, across Europe in 1944, but they were better known really for fighting in the Eastern Front. So Burma, Imphal, Kohima against the Japanese. And more recently, their famous conflicts have been in the Falklands War back in uh, 1982 and, of course, in Iraq and Afghanistan. And what does it actually involve being the operations officer in Nepal? Yeah, it was um, working with regular serving Gurkhas, but actually mainly with ex-Gurkhas who are employed to do the recruiting and selection process of every year's fresh batch of Gurkha soldiers. So that's 17 to 21 year olds who come in their thousands to apply and go through a very rigorous selection process for normally about 200 places per year. Um, and obviously you can imagine that's a huge and manpower intensive process. So I was I had some influence on all of that and that was a fantastic uh, interest, a great privilege you know, interviewing these young men at the end of each day where they'll have gone through gruelling tests. They'd have been cut at each point where they failed any one test. You're, you're out. You have to pass absolutely everything. Even First get, time? 
Yeah, yeah, even to get to the interviews at the end of, of your day and then you sit in front of one British officer and one Gurkha officer just uh, falling down the side of a mountain there, excuse me. Yeah, so to witness that and be in that position in front of young men who are, you know, desperately well prepared, desperately want to have that ticket to, a, you know, a life as a Gurkha soldier and everything that that comes with, um, that was brilliant and that was a big part of it. God, I had no idea how brutal it was. Like, you fail one test and that's it. Yep, that's it. Fail one and you are out. And the final event is something called the Doko Challenge. And this is basically where they get these uh, baskets that sit on their upper back with a strap coming around their forehead. They fill it with rocks and they do this five-kilometre race up and down a mountain. And that is the final challenge for the final batch of people that have got through to the last piece of selection. Uh, and one of the things Mark told me separately was that during the final part of this docker race, uh, local young women who are trying to bag themselves a Gurkha husband stand along the final stretch of this race because for them, they know that if they manage to marry a Gurkha, then they are guaranteed a home, they're guaranteed army quarters, their kids are guaranteed a good education, they're likely to move to England. So you have this interesting social dynamic as well, where not only is it great to be a Gurkha because of all of those benefits that I just mentioned, but also it's good to be the wife of a Gurkha. So you have this very interesting um, aspect of that there in Nepal. So why do people want to become Gurkhas so much? There's the cultural element of it. You know, it's this prestigious thing to do. It's this kind of warrior pride element as well, particularly from the people of the original Gurkha tribe, because that was their history. But then from a very practical level, Nepal is still quite a poor country. There's not a huge amount of opportunity there, even if you're very highly educated. And the income of a Gurkha soldier is exactly the same as any other British soldier. So the income disparity between whether you stay in Nepal or go and be a Gurkha soldier in Britain or serving overseas is enormous, as well as all the other benefits that come with being in the British Army, which is housing, uh, particularly housing if you're married, guaranteed education for your kids. So if they're based in the UK, they're going to get an English education. And that's a whole host of things that you just would have to be incredibly lucky or wealthy to be able to access in Nepal. Mm-hmm. And am I right in thinking that Mark, the, the man you were talking to, and Johnny, who we've not heard from yet, were both Gurkha officers? Yep, that's correct. So Mark Brightwell and Johnny Fenn went to Sandhurst and then worked their way um, up from being a lieutenant, uh, in Johnny's case, all the way up to lieutenant colonel. And they both served in the Gurkhas in various different roles, whether that was a platoon commander, which is the first job looking after 30 guys, or you heard Mark mentioning his role as an ops officer, which is where you look after all the operations and tasks and things that are going on. And in his final job, Johnny actually worked with the Gurkha Welfare Trust and was very involved in what happens to Gurkhas after they retire. Mm-hmm. So am I right in thinking, Ash, that it is British officers who run the Gurkhas? It's not a Nepalese officer? Generally, the people that are doing that officer stuff, yeah, they're nearly all British. Is that like a colonial hang-up, Ash? Because it seems like a very odd thing to have British soldiers running these battalions. Yeah, so the Gurkhas are this unique thing in that they're Nepali citizens serving in the British army under this tripartite agreement between the British 
government, the Nepalese government, uh, and of course the British army and the uh, Nepalese citizens. But to be a British regiment, it still has to be under the control of British citizens, uh, which is why the officers are British. Now, I don't think there's anything stopping second-generation Gurkhas born in Britain who have British citizenship applying for the Army Officers Selection Board, going to Sandhurst, and then becoming officers in the Gurkha Regiment. But to be an officer in the British Army, or generally to serve in the British Army, you have to have British citizenship. Mm. It's a slightly strange dynamic, isn't it? And, and, and so I suppose, how do you ensure the integration, that the, the British officers integrate with Nepalese people and culture? In terms of how they then do that integration, they come over and as part of their basic training, they do have different additional cultural elements. They go down and visit London and they get extra language training. But I think as part of the selection process, they all have to be able to speak a fairly decent level of English anyway. And for the officers themselves, the officers have additional cultural training. They have to learn basic Nepali, at least. Not all of them actually go and spend time in Nepal. Now, Johnny and Mark both speak very good Nepalese because they have spent time in Nepal and both of them chose to do that. But because of the way an army works, uh, most of the actual command and engagement between the officers and the soldiers is done through the non-commissioned officers. So in the Gurkhas, every single non-commissioned officer and every single senior non-commissioned officer is a Nepalese Gurkha. So somebody who was, back in the day, they were a Gurkha rifleman, then they became a Gurkha corporal, Gurkha sergeant, Gurkha sergeant major, Gurkha warrant officer. So they're the people that make the regiment run and translate the culture and not just the language for the British officers. What was it like being a British officer with Gurkha soldiers? Was there a barrier and how did you learn to do that? I mean, I spent time as an army reservist platoon commander and all of my soldiers were like me, they were reservists, so I had a lot in common with them. Yeah, it is, and I can speak about it having obviously worked with British soldiers in Iraq. Um, it's very, very different. Um, working with the British lads was fun. It was different. You know, they're quite geezery, wide boys. Like they call you boss. They'll be all right, boss. Can I do this for you, boss? Or what do you want me to do here, boss? And it's, they, you know, and also they're they're lads from places that I know. They're from lads from places even down the road. Some of them from where I'm from. So quite a lot in common, as you said. With Gurkhas, very, very different. Somebody explained it to me like this, and I think it's quite apt. So when you commission from Sandhurst, you've got your one pip, you're a second lieutenant, you are the most junior officer. And when you turn up to your troop in a British battalion, regiment, it's essentially your experienced sergeant and your experienced corporals under him who run things until they kind of figure out that you're okay and they grow a trust and you grow a working relationship with that um, sergeant um, so you start without very much respect or, or trust uh, and you have to work very hard to earn it with the Gurkhas it's the other way around they understand because a lot of them actually will have spent some time at Sandhurst as demonstration troops supporting training so they have an idea and understanding of what you've been through to get that one pip but also they're just very respectful by culture and nature I think so you turn up as that most junior officer no experience operationally compared with you know your corporals and your sergeant however you have that trust and certainly you have that respect and and the difference is that it's there to lose in terms of working with Gurkha soldiers the more of their language you speak 
I think the better that rapport becomes and the more you can cross over that or that some of those certain barriers um, but even then there's a certain you do end up being a, a little aloof as a as the one British guy in a troop of or a platoon of 20 to 30 men and that's not for everybody so what was the connection between the photography and the Gurkhas what took you there Ash so Johnny had had a career or an interest in photography before he joined the army then when he left the army he turned that into a full-time profession it was something that he did on the side as part of his enjoyment throughout the army and Mark also started to develop his interest in photography as he was leaving the army and turned it into a full-time career once he left both of them actually used their photography as a way to work with charities in Nepal afterwards particularly the Gurkha Welfare Trust um, which helps retired and former Gurkhas in Nepal. So both of them had used their photography quite a lot out there before and realised that this was a great opportunity to bring people to Nepal, teach them photography, teach them about Nepal uh, and also turn it into a bit of a business. How much does the connection with the Gurkhas and your own experience play into how people can experience Nepal when they come with you guys? Yeah, um... We, uh, we, we tie in a little bit with the Gurkha Welfare Trust, uh, which, is, which is a wonderful charity doing loads and loads of work for all those guys that didn't qualify for a service pension uh, in, the, uh, in the UK once they left the British Army. So a charity was set up uh, 50 or so years ago now, and that pays them a welfare pension. We try and find, whilst we're on our treks, those where those, some of those welfare pensions are. And that's, that's a lovely thing to do because we can tell a little story. It's really great as well for us teaching photography because uh, it allows us an opportunity to build a narrative uh, and get the, uh, uh, the participants to start thinking about the context of their photo- photography, uh, to be able to tell a story within, uh, within their photography. But also, we have a night at the beginning where we, we go down to the big area welfare centre that's run by the Gurkha Welfare Trust and we meet 23 or 24 uh, residents of a residential home uh, who are usually over 80 and some of them, one of them is 99, the oldest one is 99 and these guys had served in the Second World War and beyond so everybody gets to see those guys as well and they love being photographed so that's always a pleasure. Unfortunately, I didn't actually make that part of the trip because Storm Kiara delayed my flight out. So I was stuck in England for an extra couple of days. I've met and worked with Gurkha soldiers before in the British Army, uh, but didn't actually get to meet any of these guys during that trip. Oh, what a shame. That would have been fascinating. Um, but on the pensions front, Ash, I know like Joanna Lumley has campaigned loads to um, get the Gurkhas their pensions. Can you explain a little bit more about that? So historically, the British government did not pay Gurkha soldiers the full British pension, the same as British soldiers got. And fundamentally, the reason was they were earning something like 10 to 20 times, and still, I think it's about 10 times the average Nepalese wage. They weren't having to pay for accommodation in the UK because you're in the army. And so when they finished their time in the British Army and went back to Nepal, they effectively had a huge savings pot already that was massively amplified when they went out there. That was kind of the justification. You know, they earned so much more than they normally would in Nepal. They could choose to invest that um, if they wanted to during their time in the army. Um, 
That became controversial, and the Joanna Lomley campaign was based on the fact that these guys have served the British Army, they've served Britain, they've served our nation, and they weren't guaranteed residency here in the UK, even after they'd finished their time in the British Army. And her campaign was about ensuring that anybody who served in the British Army as a Gurkha was guaranteed residence in the United Kingdom and also that they would get full pensions. I'm not exactly sure about the specific details and when that came into play and whether that was backdated to any of the guys who'd already retired, but that was fundamentally the the whole thing about that campaign. Johnny Fenn, who you heard from there, was one of the people behind it. Obviously, Joanna Lumley was very much the figurehead that got the public... Uh, support behind it but Johnny was one of the people making that campaign happen in the first place and Gurkha Welfare Trust is a charity that looks after retired Gurkhas and their families correct so um, there was a time when Gurkhas could serve in the British Army but not receive any pension whatsoever they had to retire back to Nepal um, and some of them retired back into some very austere um, and poor living conditions uh, and it was quite rightly recognised that this was not correct. It wasn't the right thing. So a UK-registered charity, the Gurkha Welfare Trust, was started uh, in order to create funds and then create a field branch, which was then the Gurkha Welfare Scheme, which would implement projects for the welfare of those ex-Gurkhas, known as welfare pensioners now, uh, and also their dependents, their widows, their families and their communities. I think it's really interesting that he touched on widows there because that's really important as well. Yeah, and I think that was one of the real driving factors behind this. You know, and as Mark really clearly explains, uh, despite what the British government had said about, well, you know, these guys go back and they've got their money and they're still getting a better pension than they would have in Nepal. The fundamental thing is this doesn't seem fair. And particularly for the widows. And it's good and it's right that this has been amended and we now give Gurkhas the same pension rights and residency rights as anyone else that serves in the British Army. Mm -hmm. And you you mentioned that Mark and Johnny run these trips and facilitate meetings with the Gurkha pensioners for the photo journey guests. Um, How do you feel about that? Because is there an element of exploitation there? The Gurkha guys, the pensioners and the widows absolutely love it. If you think about it, if you have a bunch of young people come to visit you when you're in a retirement home and they're really interested in your stories and who you are and what you've done in your life. I think most retirees, most pensioners would love that. And I think for the guys who live in these retirement homes and the ladies who live in the retirement homes as well, it's a real opportunity for them to connect with the country that they have a huge history with, a country that they have served for, a country they have probably lived in, as well as just being able to tell that thing that all old soldiers love to do, which is tell their old stories. Do they get any money from the visit or anything like that? So I know that Photo Journey donate quite a bit of their profit to the Gurkha Welfare Trust, which runs these retirement homes. And in terms of how that plays, you know, Johnny and Mark both spent a lot of their time working for the Gurkha Welfare Trust. So I think they're both people that do this with integrity and honesty and genuine care. Like I say, Johnny was one of the main people behind the campaign that Joanna Lumley did. Um, Any trip to any country is all about cultural engagement, or it should be an authentic cultural engagement. And I think this is a pretty good way to do it. When the guests are at 
the retirement home as well. Of course, they're putting money behind the bar um, and buying books of the guys that have written them. So there's money going directly into the pockets of the people who live there as well through them visiting. So I think overall, I would say that it is a good thing. And particularly because of the background that Mark and Johnny have, I think it's done with an authenticity and integrity that you may not always find with other companies visiting cultural places. That's reassuring to hear because there's always that fine balance, isn't there, with these sorts of things? Yeah. And I think as travellers, it's something that's very easy to get wrong where you don't want to just be going to a place and it being a bit like a cultural zoo. And I think, therefore, you need to have a really strong connection with the people that are there because both of these guys looked after and worked with Gurkha soldiers, both in their time as officers in command and in their time in the Gurkha Welfare Trust, I think it gives them an insight that not everybody would have in places. Mm. And as we look at returning to wider travel as coronavirus starts to ebb, I think we should really take into account the way that we're traveling from a culturally sensitive perspective and making sure that the efforts and the revenue does go into the local economy and not just into the pockets of other foreign companies. I definitely agree with that. But I I also really like the fact that there's that oral history element that you can really, if you go with the right mindset when you travel and want to learn, like there's literally no better way to learn, I think, than sitting down with a cup of tea with someone and just having a good old chit chat and and hearing those stories and, and learning more. If you think about one of the challenges of Instagram and YouTube, what it's done is it's created an anticipation in every traveller that travel is all about what you can see, that you take a photo. Whereas actually, what's really, really good about travel, as you've just said, is the conversations and the stories and meeting people, talking to them and not just photographing them. I guess also it's important for them to maintain that connection with Britain, a country that they have literally served for years and to have that connection with people from Britain and maintain a bit of that? Yeah, so I mean, I certainly find in my conversations with some of the old veterans something to do with the fact that we both served within Brigade of Gurkhas. We both went on warfighting operations. Um, it, it sort of doesn't matter that mine were Afghanistan, Iraq, and theirs was, you know, World War II, even some of them, Burma. Uh, the fall of Singapore, one of the guys spent the entire war in Changi Prison. Uh, we met him the other day. That serviceman's kind of bond and within the brigade of Gurkhas, that's particularly strong. So, yeah, it's a nice, it's a nice link to maintain. And they're, they're amazing subjects to photograph. Some of the widows, um, so the dependents who are also entitled quite rightly to that level of care and live in the home. You know, they're 80 years old, 90 years old, beaming smiles, beautifully dressed up for the occasion in bright colours and saris and all their gold finery on in terms of jewellery. And they're dancing for our guests. Um, And it's just, yeah, it's a really joyous evening. I couldn't have imagined something quite that special, to be honest. And so for the people who come through photo journey, that gives them a chance to develop and practice some of the photographic skills but also to really understand that very special bond between Nepal and Britain because of the Brigade of Gurkhas. Yeah I think a lot of people aside from the photography are very interested in their own you know British military history and the Gurkhas are integral to that and a lot of people know something of the Gurkhas 
but actually not much beyond that. So to be able to pick uh, the brains of the likes of Johnny and I and then to actually go beyond that and have, um, you know, conversations, uh, albeit sort of facilitated through interpreters, uh, but to be able to converse with these guys who are living history, to meet the guys that came from here and serve all over the theatres of war in the Second World War for our country, it's really interesting. You can see people engage with that and just the number of questions that we get and the, the difficulty we have pulling pulling our guests away from some of the, the Gurkha um, welfare pensioners. Um, and even, even though the bar was open, people still were sort of hooked on their conversations there. It was, yeah, it told its own story. Oh, you said you didn't get the chance to go and meet the pensioners and be at that bar, but um, did you get a sense from the trip, Ash, that the people on the photo journey really did take the time to learn the history and had taken more away from that journey than than pure photographic skills. Absolutely. And I spent quite a bit of time chatting to people during the walks, of course. And for some of them, this was a completely life-changing experience. And I think to be on a trip where you're sort of forced to engage with the cultural elements can help you discover something really quite remarkable that you may not otherwise have. You know, I went to Nepal when I was 19 and kind of backpacked around and spent most of my time in hostels speaking to travellers from Britain and the States and Israel and Australia and would chat to Nepalese guys as often as I could. But here, staying in tea houses and uh, working with uh, guys that were working as the Sherpas and spending time with the Gurkhas and being able to ask Mark and Johnny about some of the more subtle uh, cultural aspects that we are not aware of, but they're able to explain because of their time working in Nepal, was hugely valuable. I'm still in touch with quite a few of the guys who were on the trip and they harken back to it about it being the best trip they'd ever been on because of all of those elements, because of the chance to really engage with the culture. And I think I think that's so key, isn't it? It's like using travel as a way of deepening our understanding about the world, but equally at the same time, not exploiting the places that we visit. I mean, how, how do you think going forward, Ash, like we all travel a little bit better? Well, if you think about the things that have had to happen for this trip to have that level of proper cultural engagement, you've got two guys who spent half of their lives living in Nepal, working alongside Gurkhas, both of whom have been deeply embedded in a charity that is devoted to the welfare of Gurkhas. And they now run a business that gives a lot of its profit to those charities. So you've had to have a lot of individual and personal connection to ensure that the way that cultural engagement is done is sensitive and for the benefit of all. And I think the best way to do this going forward is to make sure that when you're traveling, you're doing it with companies that have a genuine connection with the place that they're visiting and which engage deeply with local partners. So on the trip that I was on, one of the main guides, one of the other photographic guides, Aditya, he was from Pokhara. He ran an orphanage in Pokhara. He was a local guy who cared about his area. Then all of the head Sherpas were directly employed with um, Photo Journey. So rather than what many companies do in other countries that I've seen, where they just bring in everybody from abroad, bimble about the country and then fly home again. It's making sure that the operators you're working with generally are giving money and connected to that local economy. And if you're traveling independently and you're not going with a company, for example, how do you make sure you're going in with the right attitude? 
That's a good question. And I think one of the best things you can do is listen to people from that area. Now, there is an imperialist history to a lot of our travel where white people have gone to countries and exploited them and oppressed them and extracted resource. And I think it's kind of got this really nasty echo in some of the travel that you see. I saw it in places like Costa Rica, you see it in parts of East Africa in particular, uh, where you basically have companies that are making lots of money out of the culture and environment of a place, but not actually giving back or having any local ownership of it. So I think the best way for us to educate ourselves is to read travel articles, travel blogs, and look at YouTube or even Instagram of people who are from that area and see what is their insight into the place. Not just a foreigner writing about it, but what do locals say about it? For those of us who are looking to travel independently, getting an insight like that and seeing different narratives opens our eyes to what's really going on in travel. It must be nice for the pensioners as well because you know, they served Britain for so long, but to retain that element of connection with visitors from Britain to be able to come here and almost keep a bit of that connection going. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they, they adore uh, being visited. Um, you know, sometimes it can feel a bit intrusive um, having, having a group of guys sort of taking photographs of some of the elderly and infirm. But uh, if they don't get photographed, they'll let you know that they're pretty upset that you missed them out. Uh, so that's, that is lovely. And uh, they always have this sort of wonderful connection with the British Army because they feel very much a part of it. It made them sort of able to go out from their villages and do interesting things, uh, despite the fact that, you know, a lot of them were fighting in the war. But that connection, to retain that connection, is very important to them. That's been really fascinating for me to hear sort of a bit more about the Gurkha history and dig a little into that and to understand more that, you know, it's not about taking a photo or taking memories or, you know, the take, take, take culture that often happens with travel and what we can give um, when we go places has been really interesting. Well, I think it's also about what you can receive rather than take. Now, that's a subtle distinction. So, you know, it's receiving their stories, receiving their wisdom, their history, and understanding what matters to them. So that's receiving what they want you to know, rather than you taking what you want to have. But that's a thought that I'm going to try and carry on a bit more in my travel, what you can receive rather than take, as well, of course, as what you can give back, which in tourism in places like Nepal, the economic impact of you traveling to places can be vitally important to that country. Mm, and like you touched on the last episode, fingers crossed that the coronavirus subsides and, and the money can flow back into the economy. I think it's actually quite an important thing for us to do. Once it's safe for us to do so, and we're not putting places at risk of spreading further contagion. To be able to ensure that we're spending our money in places where it's going to have the biggest positive impacts. You know, 2020 was a huge year for Nepal. It was going to be Nepal 2020, this massive year of promoting tourism. And that's been completely nailed by coronavirus. So one of the places I look forward to going back to when I can, because the culture is such a rewarding place and you can receive such good wisdom and insight by traveling there, but also because my money will have a bigger impact in Nepal than it will do in the United States, for example. Oh, Ash, thank you so much for taking the time to chat through your story about the Gurkhas. That was really, really fascinating. Thanks, but thank you for asking. Thanks for listening to that episode of The First Mile. 
Pip and I have really enjoyed making this show and we would love it if more people could hear it. So if you've enjoyed that episode, please could you do a couple of things to help others find the first mile. Subscribe to the podcast, leave us a rating or a review on your podcast app. The review doesn't have to be long, even a thumbs up will do. Then send the link to this episode to a friend who might be interested or take a screenshot of this episode and share it on social media. Make sure you tag us on at Ash Bardwaj and at Pip Stewart and we'll be sure to share it too. Then go put your feet up and have a nice cup of tea. So thanks guys for listening and we'll see you next time on The First Mile. This episode of The First Mile was supported by Montaigne's Further Faster podcast. Each episode of Further Faster is packed with inspiration and insight about extreme exploration and adventure, and we listen to it whenever we want to blow our minds about what's possible. Just search for Further Faster on your podcast app to find it.